there's something to do with mindset and a mindset of being stoic, independent, just getting on with things that kind of prevent men from engaging. That's Professor Deborah Turnbull, the current Chair of Psychology at the University of Adelaide. And she wants us to take a closer look at men's mental health. There's a stubbornly sustained portion, about 10% of cases, where men just don't get the kind of services that they need. That something happens in the interaction between the man and the health provider. And it's really that kind of aspect and that kind of dynamic that we're trying to unpick. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're discussing the link between men and their mental health. What are the current barriers to men seeking the help they need, and what do we need to do to break these barriers down? Join us as we work to dissect the stigma and improve the systems that assist men on their mental health journey. This is The Discovery Pod. Hi Deborah, and welcome to The Discovery Pod. Hi Andy, good to be here. Deborah, you're a professor in psychology in the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide and part of the Freemason Centre for Men's Health and Wellbeing. Now, we know that more than 60% of people who die prematurely are male, and between 50 and 64% of deaths are potentially avoidable. So how is your work helping address some of these issues? Yeah, thank you. I work in a multidisciplinary team. There's a group of clinical psychologists, health psychologists and academics here at the university with industry partners like um, Movember. And our work is really focused at improving men's mental health and well-being. The last census told us that over 40% of men suffer at some point in their lifetime from mental health distress. The major causes of distress are things like anxiety, depression, and the substance use disorders. So against that backdrop, we know that there are really high quality interventions that are available to be able to address distress like cognitive behavior therapy. The issue is the extent to which we can provide those therapies in a way that men can engage with them and find them satisfying, meaningful and useful. So my research is really about addressing the whole suite of problems, issues, questions around men's help-seeking for mental health. So you mentioned that from the last census, 40% of men suffer from some form of mental health distress. Is that more than women? Yeah, look, we're often asked this. And really, we resile from responding in a really simple way. Because, you know, from our perspective, it's it's not a competition, if you like. It is the case that for some disorders, like the substance use disorders, men are impacted more. Similarly, we do know that men are at elevated risk for dying via suicide, death by suicide. 
Now, that's particularly important for us to understand because, in fact, in the age group 15 to 44, it's the major cause of death for men in that group. Mm. And we know from both Australian statistics and the international statistics that men are between twice and three times more likely to die this way. Now, there's lots of individual stories behind those data. And our research is really about looking at how we can improve health services usage and provision for men in the really common high prevalence disorders that are often preceding, you know, those extreme events. Mm. So particularly disorders and distress related to depression Mm. and anxiety. And we know that between one in five and one in eight Australian men will be impacted by those particular experiences. So it's really important for us to get our health services right in that context. average eight people take their lives in Australia every day, six of which are men. Suicide, the leading killer of men under 55. The quickest way to heal a man is to listen to him. No one's listening because men are falling through the cracks. Whether it's bullying in the workplace, whether it's trouble with the armed services that we've seen, whether it's other issues in schools, beyond talking, what's our actions? It's like blowing into a balloon. Each problem that you face that you don't talk about and it just gets to a point, you just keep blowing into that balloon, it gets to a point where it just bursts. It's the conversation we have to have as a country. It is something that everyone knows it's wrong, everyone knows it's too high, but even still with all this support and all this focus, it's not something people are comfortable talking about. It can sometimes be easy to lose sight of the importance of an issue in a landslide of percentages, variables and data points. But as Deborah says, we must remember that every stat is a story, every stat is a life. So let's put that into perspective. In 2021, 1,206 Australians lost their lives on our roads in motor vehicle accidents. Remember that number. In the same year, the figure for male suicide was 2,358. The number of men dying by suicide is nearly double the number of men and women who die in car crashes. But while we know we should buckle up, observe speed limits, and keep our eyes on the road, there is a lot less understanding around mental health and what to do when things start to go wrong. So as you say, it's not really a gender competition, but it's really emphasising that this is probably a relatively misunderstood area or under-recognised area. So these are the telltale flags of depression and anxiety. Then we need to start doing something about those when they emerge. Yeah, I think that, you know, you've really put the nail on the head in terms of some of the myths in this area. So, Mm. you know, typically the research and the stories have been about, oh, men just don't seek help. It's really on them. Okay. But it's not that simple. Insofar as we do know that by and large, the data show us that men are less likely to seek services than women. But the patterns of usage change over time. And in fact, we know that the differences between men and women's help seeking, it's actually, the differences are quite small as men get older. 
So it's really important for us to sort of avoid this narrative around, well, they just need to be fixed Mm. in some way. They need to somehow be different. And that's particularly compounded by the fact that we know that oftentimes health services are provided to men in a very feminized way. Hmm. So what do you mean by that? What's, well, what's an example? Well, just by the, the space that men go into for health services, they'll frequently only be open during working periods. So men find it difficult to get away during those times. Just the look and feel of the space, you know, having lots of women's magazines in the place, beautiful soft colours. And then when the men go in to see the practitioner, you know, sometimes there's an expectation that they will just present and behave in the way that women do. So they'll be able to express their emotions in the same way. And we know that that's not always the case. And we know that through our own research and the research of others, that using metaphors, for example, that are more likely to be meaningful to men, Mm. perhaps like sporting metaphors, Mm. metaphors from football, for example, those kinds of things can often be much more meaningful and effective when practitioners are interacting with men to improve health outcomes. Yeah, but it's really going to require a bit of a redesign of the system to be able to get men to open up, to approach and get the support of those services. And when they do, it's an alien environment, isn't it? So uh, what what other recommendations do you make in addition to kind of presenting metaphors that might make it easier yeah. for men to talk? What, what are the kind of yeah. uh, areas do you recommend that these sort of changes are made? Yeah. So one of the members of our team, Dr. Zach Seidler, who's a up-and-coming clinical psychology researcher. He works with Movember. He's published a lot in this work and he thinks that there's probably really simple things that we can be doing in our health services delivery to improve engagement. So for example, just through the qualitative research, that is the interview research that he's done with men, indicates that men prefer, for example, a very solutions-focused interaction. So they really want to be in a situation where they are coming in, they're setting goals for improving their mental health, they're identifying solutions, they're working in partnership with their health service provider. The other thing that Dr. Seidler's work has highlighted is the importance of providing men with a roadmap. Mm. So to have a sense at the outset where this is going to take them through the course of their health interaction. So a much more active approach to a very solutions of focused approach and maybe one that's less involved in having men reflect on their thoughts and their feelings in the same way that maybe a woman routinely would. Mm. You've talked a little bit about a few of the solutions. Why do you think we are in a situation where so many men do suffer some form of uh, mental health distress? Have things changed? Have things changed for men? What's uh, are there, there problems with uh, you know connections? What's going on there to cause that level? Yeah. It's a really good question, and the researchers offered looked at this through the lens of masculinity. 
Despite being at greatest risk of suicide, men are far less likely than women to seek help for mental health problems. Men are socialized differently about emotions. So, you know, you're thought to man up. We still struggle to talk about it. We label it as abnormal or unusual, and we make men wrong for having suicidal thoughts. A lot of confusion around masculinity. You know, real men don't cry, and, and there's lies that are out there. And if I could encourage any men, it's just to be honest with their emotions and to seek help. To be a real man is to be tough, to be strong, show no emotion, be buff, just deal with stuff, suck it up. Often don't be gay comes up. We've got a real issue in Australia with cultures of young men's mental health, which are clearly aligned with their thoughts and identification around masculinity. There should be an onus on organisations to target blokes better, go to where they are, and also do a better job at recruiting men into caregiving roles. There's something to do with mindset and the mindset of being stoic, independent, just getting on with things that kind of prevent men from engaging. Mm. And the literature tells us, both the literature that comes from surveys as well as that that comes from interviews, is that having a kind of a masculine mindset, it can be an impediment for reaching out. But here's the thing, it only explains a portion of the reluctance. Putting it another way, the literature tells us that it probably explains about 10% of the multiplicity of reasons that men and health services aren't engaging. Mm. When we talk about help-seeking, we in our research team conceptualise it as beyond the, the behaviour of the individual man, the behaviour of the individual man within the health system and the ability of the health system to be responsive to men's needs. So what we know is that men who are distressed are more likely to seek help than those who aren't. We also know that there's a stubbornly sustained portion, about 10% of cases, where men just don't get the kind of services that they need. Mm. That something happens in the interaction between the man and the health provider. And it's really that kind of aspect and that kind of dynamic that we're trying to unpick. And one of the ways we're doing that is, and this is the work of PhD student Alex Bray, who is really exploring new theories to explain why men and health services don't connect. And one of the theories that we're looking at is the signaling theory, which comes from a very long-standing idea that the man, when he comes into an interaction, he sends certain signals to the health service provider. The extent to which the health service provider can actually decode those signals will impact on just how much between the two of them they can work out what's going on. So that signaling theory takes into account the interaction between the man and the provider, but also the broader environment. Yeah, it's a complex area, isn't it? It's, uh, it's very complex. How do we move things along in this space? How do we, well, encourage men to present? I mean, does it does it come back to a broader engagement with emotions <laughs> early on in childhood? What's uh, How do we start tackling some of these issues? 
Well, I think that that's part of the story. Um, We do know that gender-sensitive services and gender-sensitive psychological care is more effective. Mm. So... So that's the first thing. We need to make sure that's in place and therefore those people that are having problems and suffering problems feel able to approach those services and they're engaged with in an appropriate way. Yeah, and we also need to develop our health workforce to have in their toolbox, if you like, knowledge and reactions that are gender-sensitive. And this is the signaling idea. So yeah. they're, they're looking for those small signals, which may it may not be, be a problem, but though those kind of little cues. That's such a good way of characterising it, I think, because the literature tells us that oftentimes men will express their distress in a way that's quite different to that of a woman. Mm. So, for example, there is quite good research that feelings of anger frustration, those kinds of feelings can often be associated with distress. Mm. And so it's quite important that we're in a situation where we can decode those and see beyond, you know, the superficial presentation of those things. We do know the literature does tell us that there can be a tendency for men to be misdiagnosed. In some of the other work that I'm doing with another PhD student, Brooke Packham, down at Mount Gambia, with borderline personality disorder, you know, that's now telling us that quite a portion of men we think are in prison with borderline personality disorder, but they have been misdiagnosed, if you like. Yeah. It's really not an easy thing to do. The other part of the story, I think, is having a workforce, a diverse mental health workforce, that's really important. Diversity in the providers so that men have got access to providers who of of all genders, Hmm. providers who may identify as LGBTIQ plus in their identity so that the workforce can be responsive to diversity. And just coming back to the sense of masculinity and the role that that takes and sometimes making the issues worse as well because of the expectation, you know, every man is an island is uh, yeah. a notion that, that we come across. Are other ways to progress new notions to masculinity that wouldn't be uh, foreign to, uh, to a lot of men? Uh, what are we seeing a changing masculinity emerging? Most definitely. Mm. I think the literature tells us that those ideas of hegemonic masculinity, which is based on those notions of strength, stoicism, independence, dominance, that those notions are being gradually supplanted by Mm. a more rounded idea of what it means to, to be masculine. And the other thing that's gone into our thinking is the idea that the presentation of masculinity can change depending on the circumstances. Mm. So it's not necessarily... We're starting to rethink it in terms of it, yes, being a a disposition or a, a trait, 
but one where there's a degree of flexibility. Looking at the gap between men and mental health services available in Australia, it seems like changes can be made on both sides to minimise disengagement that can have devastating consequences. On one side, our mental health system must be better equipped to reach men who need help, where, when and as they are. Building up a diverse workforce armed with strategies and spaces designed specifically for men is a good place to start. But is it possible to bridge this divide from the other side as well? What support can we put in place to ensure men feel able to reach out for help when they need it? If you listen to the, the clinical and health psychologists in our group, they would argue that that's a psychologically way more healthy situation to be in. For men rather than continually having to kind of revert to the one single response for mm. every situation. Mm. So obviously putting services in place that men can engage with now is going to solve and, and help men seek access to help now. But how do we frame that new sense of masculinity within the next generation of boys that are coming through? How do we help uh, boys maybe become more aware of some of these uh, mental health issues and start moving towards perhaps a more positive way to, to deal mm. uh, with some of those pressures? Mm. Well, there are efforts afoot to run out gender-sensitive programs in the schooling system. Mm. And the idea be behind those is that they not only benefit the young men that are on the receiving end, but they benefit society more generally because of the flow on to, amongst other things, you know, relationships with um, other people. Yeah. So that that's part of it. And then I think there's that long-term story about continuing to call out fixed gender norms. Mm to question those fixed gender norms. <laughs> so it's an interesting it's an interesting term, isn't it? Because are those gender norms fixed? Yeah. I don't know that I can answer that entirely, but I think the literature that our group reads suggests that having less narrow gender normative behavior mm. can be healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Having a diversity of responses, uh, not a, not a singular response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And trying something else. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm I'm really interested in the concept of masculinity as well as how we can provide men with a bit more of an emotional toolbox. And I know myself. Almost work life and home life is almost very isolating for men. It's difficult for men to reach out to other men. They tend to be busy, tend to work hard, yeah. and come home, and life is is around the family. So, and certainly what I what I've noticed is you don't have that network of friendships uh, that perhaps you had when you were younger. And often, you know, as academics, we might move with our uh, positions as well. So you're having to establish new networks. And that, that kind of friendship network is something which is quite fragile, I think. 
But also, when you do reach out to men and you have an open and honest engagement, I've been really surprised by just how honest a conversation most men are prepared to have. And I think having that conversation peer-to-peer, man-to-man, and being bold enough to have that conversation with other men, it's somehow as though men are waiting or wanting that kind of engagement. So this idea that the emotional domain is just for women is is not. It's men, but they do need to understand how to access that side. Yeah, I'm nodding because I think that there's a couple of things in that. Mm. The first thing is about the issue of social relationships. And I think that that's really crucial because we know that social support and social relationships are a critical aspect of not only mental health and well-being, but also physical health and well-being. So much now that the National Heart Foundation have actually have in their guidelines lack of social support as being a risk factor Mm. for heart problems. Mm. Okay, so that's how fundamental it is. Mm. So... Having, you know, an insight into that and giving yourself permission and time to work that through in a way that is practical and feasible for you as an individual, depending on what part of the lifespan you're at, I think it's got a lot of, you know, potential power to it. I think that, you know, sometimes it can be really hard to ignite or reignite those social structures. And it's not just about time, but it can also be about confidence and about skills. And that's really compounded if you're not feeling well. Yeah. If you are experiencing depression or, you know, in this case, if you're really experiencing, for example, social anxiety. Mm. So I think that those experiences, you know, make it even harder. Well, where, where do you go with that? Well, I think that now, because psychological services can often be really hard to access, particularly now. Hmm. Why particularly now? Just because of post-COVID and so many people requiring this support? Yep, yep. and psychologists being in such huge demand. Hmm. And, you know, I trained as a clinical psychologist and I am very much in favour of, you know, promoting the discipline and the profession. The evidence base for psychological care is enormous. But what do you do if you just can't get that care? Yeah. You know, do you really, really want to wait around for 10 weeks, 12 weeks? I don't think so. So <laughs> you've probably reached out because you need the care yeah, uh, then and there. Yeah. yeah. So what while you're while you're waiting, if you like, there are practical things that can be done. Mm. So for example, Beyond Blue have got an amazing website which outlines huge numbers of resources to address mental health literacy. There's questionnaires on there that you can complete to help you to understand, you know, if you are struggling, if you are in a particular category that needs extra help, Mm. attached to their online services are chat lines. There's access, depending on where you you live, you know, access to uh, mental health coaches. Mm. And these are really fantastic services to experience before things get out of hand. 
But equally, if you feel like things have gone out of hand, you know, accessing, well, services like Lifeline, obviously, but again, beyond blue, you can go to their services and get a sense of just where you are in terms of the mental health spectrum, yeah. mental health continuum. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some very practical tips, uh, yeah. therefore, that you can pick up from uh, Beyond Blue and the resources that are available there. Yeah. What, what else could people yeah. do? The other thing which is, I think, really important for people to know about is that under the Better Access Plan, it's actually possible for people to access psychological care, including from clinical psychologists, under the Medicare rebate program. Hmm. Depending on their situation and if it's judged by their general practitioner that they would benefit from a structured intervention, then they can get between six to about 10 sessions with a service provider under Medicare. Yeah. And that's a very heavily subscribed program. But looking into that early and looking at possibilities for that is also possibly something that can be useful. I do have one, one last question. It's a big question, Deborah. If you could do anything with uh, the rest of your work and your working career, how would you make history? I would contribute to a solution which was, and this comes back to something you said earlier on, and I think you really characterised it very neatly, this notion of redesigning health services. Hmm. So I would contribute to a program of research which moved away from putting the onus on changing men to putting <laughs> the onus on reforming health services delivery. Because we all know uh, men will change very slowly. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the, the onus on uh, making a system that uh, th those men that are, are missed, currently missed by the system can engage with would help solve a lot of these issues that we, we touched on today. Yeah, and I think, you know, this assumption that men have to change is taking us on a wild goose chase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Deborah, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Sandy. Conversations about mental health can be incredibly difficult, but they are amongst the most important discussions we can ever have. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us on this episode of The Discovery Pod. If this episode has raised any issues or concerns for you, you can contact Lifeline on 131114, and we'll provide a full list of resources you may find useful in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you found this episode insightful. In our next episode, we'll be demystifying carbon credits with Professor Michelle Wacom. It's net zero carbon, but that yeah. might not be net zero water use or net yeah. zero nutrient pollution or a few of these other issues which contribute to whether it should be considered carbon neutral.
Join us as we pull back the curtain on carbon credits and scrutinize the impact they're really having on our journey to net zero. Make sure you hit follow so you receive a notification as soon as this episode is released. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Report, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?